This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ian Bartholomew. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 6, Part 10. The King, stern as was his temper, and grave as was his deportment, was scarcely less under the influence of female attractions than his more lively and amiable brother had been. The beauty, indeed, which distinguished the favourite ladies of Charles, was not necessary to James. Barbara Palmer, Eleanor Gwynne, and Louisa de Quereville were among the finest women of their time. James, when young, had surrendered his liberty, descended below his rank, and incurred the displeasure of his family for the coarse features of Anne Hyde. He had soon, to the great diversion of the whole court, been drawn away from his plain consort by a plainer mistress, Arabella Churchill. His second wife, though twenty years younger than himself, and of no unpleasing face or figure, had frequent reason to complain of his inconstancy. But of all his illicit attachments, the strongest was that which bound him to Catherine Sedley. This woman was the daughter of Sir Charles Sedley, one of the most brilliant and profligate wits of the Restoration. The licentiousness of his writings is not redeemed by much grace or vivacity, but the charms of his conversation were acknowledged even by sober men who had no esteem for his character. To sit near him at the theatre, and to hear his criticisms on a new play, was regarded as a privilege. Dryden had done him the honour to make him a principal interlocutor in the dialogue on dramatic poesy. The morals of Sedley were such as, even in that age, gave great scandal. He on one occasion, after a wild revel, exhibited himself without a shred of clothing in the balcony of the tavern near Covent Garden, and harangued the people who were passing in language so indecent and profane that he was driven in by a shower of brickbats, was prosecuted for a misdemeanour, was sentenced to a heavy fine, and was reprimanded by the court of King's Bench in the most cutting terms. His daughter had inherited his abilities and his impudence. Personal charms she had none, with the exception of two brilliant eyes, the lustre of which, to men of delicate taste, seemed fierce and unfeminine. Her form was lean, her countenance haggard. Charles, though he liked her conversation, laughed at her ugliness, and said that the priests must have recommended her to his brother by way of penance. She well knew that she was not handsome, and jested freely on her own homeliness. Yet with strange inconstancy she loved to adorn herself magnificently, and to draw on herself much keen ridicule by appearing in the theatre and the ring, plastered, painted, clad in Brussels lace, glittering with diamonds, and affecting all the graces of eighteen. The nature of her influence over James is not easily to be explained. He was no longer young. He was a religious man. At least he was willing to make for his religion exertions and sacrifices from which the great majority of those who are called religious men would shrink. It seems strange that any attractions should have drawn him into a course of life which he must have regarded as highly criminal. 
and in this case none could understand where the attraction lay. Catherine herself was astonished by the violence of his passion. It cannot be my beauty, she said, for he must see that I have none. And it cannot be my wit, for he has not enough to know that I have any. At the moment of the king's accession, a sense of the new responsibility which lay on him made his mind for a time peculiarly open to religious impressions. He formed and announced many good resolutions, spoke in public with great severity of the impious and licentious manners of the age, and in private assured his queen and his confessor that he would see Catherine Sedley no more. He wrote to his mistress, entreating her to quit the apartments which she occupied at Whitehall, and to go to a house in St. James Square, which had been splendidly furnished for her at his expense. He at the same time promised to allow her a large pension from his privy purse. Catherine, clever, strong-minded, intrepid, and conscious of her power, refused to stir. In a few months it began to be whispered that the services of Chiffinch were again employed, and that the mistress frequently passed and repassed through the private door through which Father Huddleston had borne the host to the bedside of Charles. The king's Protestant ministers had, it seemed, conceived a hope that their master's infatuation for this woman might cure him of the more pernicious infatuation which impelled him to attack their religion. She had all the talents which could qualify her to play on his feelings, to make game of his scruples, to set before him in a strong light the difficulties and dangers into which he was running headlong. Rochester, the champion of the church, exerted himself to strengthen her influence. Ormond, who is popularly regarded as the personification of all that is pure and high-minded in the English cavalier, encouraged the design. Even Lady Rochester was not ashamed to cooperate, and that in the very worst way. Her office was to direct the jealousy of the injured wife towards a young lady who was perfectly innocent. The whole court took notice of the coldness and rudeness with which the queen treated the poor girl, on whom suspicion had been thrown. But the cause of Her Majesty's ill-humour was a mystery. For a time the intrigue went on prosperously and secretly. Catherine often told the king plainly what the Protestant lords of the council only dared to hint in the most delicate phrases. His crown, she said, was at stake. The old dotard Arundel and the blustering Tyconnel would lead him to his ruin. It is possible that her caresses might have done what the united exhortations of the lords and the commons, of the House of Austria and the Holy See, had failed to do, but for a strange mishap which changed the whole face of affairs. James, in a fit of fondness, determined to make his mistress Countess of Dorchester in her own right. Catherine saw all the peril of such a step, and declined the invidious honour. Her lover was obstinate, and himself forced the patent into her hands. She at last accepted it on one condition, which shows her confidence in her own power and in his weakness. She made him give her a solemn promise, not that he would never quit her, but that, if he did so, he would himself announce his resolution to her and grant her one parting interview. As soon as the news of her elevation got abroad, the whole palace was in an uproar. The warm blood of Italy boiled in the veins of the queen. Proud of her youth and of her charms, of her high rank 
and of her stainless chastity. She could not, without agonies of grief and rage, see herself deserted and insulted for such a rival. Rochester, perhaps remembering how patiently, after a short struggle, Catherine of Braganza had consented to treat the mistress of Charles with politeness, had expected that, after a little complaining and pouting, Mary of Moderna would be equally submissive. It was not so. She did not even attempt to conceal from the eyes of the world the violence of her emotions. Day after day the courtiers who came to see her dine observed that the dishes were removed untasted from the table. She suffered the tears to stream down her cheeks unconcealed in the presence of the whole circle of ministers and envoys. To the king she spoke with wild vehemence. "'Let me go!' she cried. "'You have made your woman a countess. Make her a queen. Put my crown on her head. Only let me hide myself in some convent, where I may never see her more.' Then, more soberly, she asked him how he reconciled his conduct with his religious professions. "'You are ready,' she said, "'to put your kingdom to hazard for the sake of your soul.' and yet you are throwing away your soul for the sake of that creature. Father Peter, on bended knees, seconded these remonstrances. It was his duty to do so, and his duty was not the less strenuously performed because it coincided with his interest. The king went on for a time, sinning and repenting. In his hours of remorse, his penances were severe. Mary treasured up to the end of her life, and at her death, bequeathed to the convent of Shalott, the scourge with which he had vigorously avenged her wrongs upon his shoulders. Nothing but Catherine's absence could put an end to this struggle between an ignoble love and an ignoble superstition. James wrote, imploring and commanding her to depart. He owned that he had promised to bid her farewell in person. But I know too well, he added, the power which you have over me. I have not strength of mind enough to keep my resolution if I see you. He offered her a yacht to convey her with all dignity and comfort to Flanders, and threatened that if she did not go quietly, she would be sent away by force. She at one time worked on his feelings by pretending to be ill. Then she assumed the airs of a martyr, and impudently proclaimed herself a sufferer for the Protestant religion. Then again she adopted the style of John Hampton, she defied the king to remove her. She would try the right with him. While the Great Charter and the Habeas Corpus Act were the law of the land, she would live where she pleased. And Flanders, she cried, never. I have learned one thing from my friend the Duchess of Mazarin, and that is never to trust myself in a country where there are convents. At length she selected Ireland as the place of her exile probably because the brother of her patron Rochester was viceroy there. After many delays she departed, leaving the victory to the Queen. The history of this extraordinary intrigue would be imperfect if it were not added that there is still extant a religious meditation, written by the treasurer, with his own hand, on the very same day on which the intelligence of his attempt to govern his master by means of a concubine was dispatched by Bon Repos to Versailles. No composition of Ken or Leighton breathes a spirit of more fervent and exalted piety than this effusion. 
Hypocrisy cannot be suspected, for the paper was evidently meant only for the writer's own eye, and was not published till he had been more than a century in his grave. So much is history stranger than fiction, and so true is it that nature has caprices which art dares not imitate. A dramatist would scarcely venture to bring on the stage a grave prince, in the decline of life, ready to sacrifice his crown in order to serve the interests of his religion, indefatigable in making proselytes, and yet deserting and insulting a wife who had youth and beauty for the sake of a profligate paramour who had neither. Still less, if possible, would a dramatist venture to introduce a statesman stooping to the wicked and shameful part of a procurer, and calling in his wife to aid him in that dishonourable office, yet, in his moments of leisure, retiring to his closet, and there secretly pouring out his soul to his God in penitent tears and devout ejaculations. The treasurer soon found that, in using scandalous means for the purpose of obtaining a laudable end, he had committed not only a crime, but a folly. The queen was now his enemy. She affected, indeed, to listen with civility, while the Hydes excused their recent conduct as well as they could, and she occasionally pretended to use her influence in their favour. But she must have been more or less than a woman if she had really forgiven the conspiracy which had been formed against her dignity and her domestic happiness by the family of her husband's first wife. The Jesuits strongly represented to the king the danger which he had so narrowly escaped. His reputation, they said, his peace, his soul, had been put in peril by the machinations of his prime minister. The nuncio, who would gladly have counteracted the influence of the violent party, and cooperated with the moderate members of the cabinet, could not honestly or decently separate himself on this occasion from Father Peter. James himself, when parted by the sea from the charms which so strongly fascinated him, could not but regard with resentment and contempt those who had sought to govern him by means of his vices. What had passed must have had the effect of raising his own church in his esteem and of lowering the Church of England. The Jesuits, whom it was the fashion to represent as the most unsafe of spiritual guides, as sophists who refined away the whole system of evangelical morality, as sycophants who owed their influence, chiefly to the indulgence with which they treated the sins of the great, had reclaimed him from a life of guilt by rebukes as sharp and bold as those which David had heard from Nathan and Herod from the Baptist. On the other hand, zealous Protestants, whose favourite theme was the laxity of popish casuists and the wickedness of doing evil that good might come, had attempted to obtain advantages for their own church in a way which all Christians regarded as highly criminal. The victory of the cabal of evil counsellors was therefore complete. The king looked coldly on Rochester. The courtiers and foreign ministers soon perceived that the Lord Treasurer was Prime Minister only in name. He continued to offer his advice daily, and had the mortification to find it daily rejected. Yet he could not prevail on himself to relinquish the outward show of power and the emoluments which he directly and indirectly derived from his great place. He did his best, therefore, to conceal his vexations from the public eye. 
but his violent passions and his intemperate habits disqualified him from the part of dissembler. His gloomy looks, when he came out of the council chamber, showed how little pleased he was with what had passed at the board. And when the bottle had gone round freely, words escaped him which betrayed his uneasiness. He might, indeed, well be uneasy. Indiscreet and unpopular measures followed each other in rapid succession. All thoughts of returning to the policy of the Triple Alliance was abandoned. The king explicitly avowed to his ministers of those continental powers, with which he had lately intended to ally himself, that all his views had undergone a change, and that England was still to be, as she had been under his grandfather, his father, and his brother, of no account in Europe. I am in no condition, he said to the Spanish ambassador, to trouble myself about what passes abroad. It is my resolution to let foreign affairs take their course, to establish my authority at home, and to do something for my religion. A few days later he announced the same intentions to the States-General. From that time to the close of his ignominious reign, he made no serious effort to escape from vassalage, though, to the last, he could never hear without transports of rage that men called him a vassal. End of Part 10